The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, train dispute zeitgeist special as Arsenal search for a striker to lead their line and struggle to pick it, while Forrest get a man in from the Union, Berlin, and Man United threaten to go off the rails again. Also, why nostalgia is overrated, but also how media days were better in the olden times, Euro 2022 talk and favourite and least favourite World Cups. All that and more coming up in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. All right then, 23rd of June, a Thursday. Here we are, just over a week out from the shores of football and on board today, Duncan Alexander, Flo Lloyd Hughes and Carl Anker. Hello, ahoy hoy. Ahoy hoy. Mm. Uh, hello. Ahoy hoy. Good. Uh, hey, we've got two thirds of Wrighty's house. Yeah? We do, we do indeed. Yeah. The important two thirds. Oh Some... no, no, stead. <laughs> no, that's a that's a Ryan Hunt masterclass right there. Oh, I'm sure there's uh, other bits, other components along later on uh, in what looks set to be a busy show, as you'd be expecting in this uh, footballless landscape. Uh, we were talking, for example, on Monday about whether we'd ever see a Rabona penalty. Hats off to listener John Whale, who highlighted that we actually already have, all the way back in 1990, before any of us were born, when Paul Gascoigne stepped up and did a Rabona from the spot in Danny Blanchfowler's testimonial against the Northern Ireland eleven, It was Spurs against the Northern Ireland eleven. This is not a game that I think I'd ever encountered before. Had any of you seen it? Seen bits of it? Can't say I ever have. Have you no, seen the penalty now? Yeah. Watch the penalty, yeah. Mm. Great stuff. The crowd kind of... I don't think people were ready to see that. I don't think they kind of quite understood it what they It was ahead of seen. its time. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. But also, it's that era when there were a lot of testimonies. Testimonies were really important to players back then because they didn't earn that much money. So um, they were taken quite seriously as well. It wasn't some sort of faux soccer aid sort of pace. It was an actual game. So um, fair play to Gaza for for lightening the mood. Well, indeed. Indeed. Uh, Flo and Duncan, the Football League fixtures were announced this morning, Thursday, 23rd of June. Who have QPR and Wickham got on opening day? QPR have got Blackburn away. uh, Not a great record when it comes to starting the season away from home. I think they've done better in the last couple of years. They beat Stoke away on the first game of the season a few years ago when Abiri Eze scored a ridiculous solo goal. But generally, going away from home isn't best for them at the start of the season. And all of their West London rivals are now in the... Uh, Premier League so you can't Ooh. even circle a few local derbies on the on the calendar anymore because Fulham, Brentford and obviously Chelsea are all in the tier above sadly. Oh don't worry Flo, here come Wickham, they're on their way <laughs> um, We've got Burton at home after finishing with Burton away on the last day of last season so wow. not That's not super exciting pleasing, I mean, for me, Pleasing symmetry though a little bit, yeah. I mean, for me, seeing Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank in July screams pre-season friendly rather than first league <laughs> game of the season, but it is what it is. Mm. So your first game of the season's in July? Yeah, yeah the, the Football League July. starts. Yeah. Day before the Women's Euros final oh, and the what? same day as the Community Shield. 
Madness. It's a bumper. It's a bumper weekend of football that in July of all mm. of all months. Blatter. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. There's the football league fixtures also uh, freshly out, and you said a groupings for the summer transfer storylines. Uh, Sterling, your record has been drawn with Chelsea. Gabriel Jesus got the Arsenal matchup. Looks like a doozy. De Jong is in with the group of death, aka Man United. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, Rafinha to Arsenal is a new one. Is it? And is it going to happen? The bid was low. They might be coming back with another one. Do you, by the way, do you habitually go to, say, the supermarket and pick up something because you're probably running out of it and then you go home and there's 17 jars of it just stood there waiting for you patiently? Because oh, yeah. that's kind of Arsenal, isn't it, with Rafinha-esque <laughs> players? I think Mikel Arteta's got very good talent ID. Every time he goes out and says, I would like a player of this profile and puts them in, you know, it takes maybe a month or two to, to see what's going on. And you go, oh, yeah, he can definitely pick a player, which is, it shouldn't be that rare for a top Premier League manager to have that. But Arteta seems to have a very good hit rate in, in picking a player that I find quite interesting. It's the other stuff that I still can't quite figure out about him as to whether or not he'll be in the Champions League places next season. But when, when Arteta goes, that's a good football player, they tend to be mm. a good football player. Has he has he not had any bus? Williams, William? the most obvious bust. Mm. Uh, and I've been on this podcast many times and said mean things about Cedric Suarez, so I will try not to do that today. Mm. But, uh, but the strike rate goes, his, his is, is pretty good. And also, are you reasonably sure that it's him rather than anybody else because they basically got rid of everybody else? I think he's, I think similar to, to Jurgen Klopp as well. I think he, he's, he's someone who started off more in a head coach capacity, but now is growing in importance and becoming closer to the, to the old English manager archetype. Uh, and I think quite a few of the, the links that Arsenal are getting now mm. sound Basically, it smells like Arteta, which is quite a nice, cool, calming musk, I must say. Yeah, I was going to say as well, it doesn't seem like from my Twitter timeline that the fans really trust the scouting ability or ideas of Edu, who really should be like, you know, making those decisions. I think they're leaning more towards trusting Arteta. So if he seems like the man behind the decision-making, I think fans are more willing to go with it. I think they're a little bit sceptical of some of the decisions that Edu's made when they seemingly are just made by him and no one else. I think they're a little bit, uh, a little bit stinky. Not the nice musk that Carl's <laughs> talking about, hmm. but a little bit stinky. So where, where does the Gabriel Jesus perspective move fit into all of this? And to what extent does this tie in with this notion that I certainly have about Arsenal that they're always going out and buying similar players and perhaps not quite the one they needed I think Arteta's got a very pronounced if you talk about the, the trust the post process thing that Arsenal fans talk about Arteta has a clear plan as to what he wants to do hmm. and he's going for it he, he wants to play a 4-3-3 that builds from the back loads of quick rotations they want to play settled possession he wants his midfielders to be quasi eight tens, and he wants his forward to be high pressing, run the channels, be capable of finishing off both feet. You don't really need to be great in the air because they're going to keep on the deck a lot. Jesus fits that model a lot. Uh, I also think the fact that he can play centrally up top as a nine, but also seems to prefer that left half space, also aids with what Arteta wants to do with his other players at Arsenal. It makes sense on a whiteboard. 
And there's been multiple times in the past two seasons where I have perhaps been too impressed by a man in a turtleneck writing stuff on a whiteboard. But that's my fault because I'm friends with Duncan. I was going to say, Carl, you wear turtlenecks all the time, so you're not far from falling in the turtleneck <laughs> trap. I don't know what, you don't have a leg to stand on in this turtleneck the turtle fight. mafia, I mean, its tentacles reach everywhere. The Horncastle, a major shadowy figure in that. That's true, Carl, but at the same time, Liverpool and City are now transitioning to having a big man up front that they're going to just hit with uh, hit the channels. So <laughs> it might be time in a couple of years for Arsenal to switch again. We shall see. We shall see. Uh, Arteta's strike rate meets Carl's approval. This week saw the departure of Marina Granovskaya at Chelsea, whose success in transfers, how would you rate that? Uh, Football 365 uh, took the opportunity to rank all 40 of her permanent moves. Do you know what the, the bottom was in that in that 40? Sal? From Athletical? No. I'd imagine that loan deal was I, I, pretty bad. I think they needed to have made a certain number of starts, and I'm right. pretty sure he okay. didn't match that criteria. But yes, in the conversation, perhaps. No, I'll, 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 I mean, the tension's unbearable, so I'll, I'll reveal that it was Danny Drinkwater. Oh, ah, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people might have thought maybe it would be Romelu Lukaku picked up for just shy of 100 million and then loaned back out this week to the club that he came from for about 10% of that. Uh, but he actually, you have to go all the way down to, we have to go past uh, Baba Rahman, 23 million oh, from yeah. Augsburg. See, I I feel like he's a trust the process. There's so much potential there. I think he's just had hard luck with injuries and I feel I feel sorry for the guy rather than it being okay. a dud signing. But I feel okay. you could say that probably with quite a few people on that list, to be honest. <laughs> well, how about number 38, uh, Bakayoko at Monaco? <laughs> Yeah, six million. Was, yeah. I do think a lot about um, when he went on loan to AC Milan, and I believe it was Gattuso said he had defects in his play, which just a mean thing to say about a football player, really. Mm. Um, Bakayoko was one of those players where the moment he arrived at Chelsea, you realised how good Fabinho was, and how oh, it was one of those. Oh, Fabinho was telling you man on, and that's why you look so much better in that Monaco side. Mm. Anyway, Strange football player. They went for Bakayoko, not for Binya, though. And there you go. And just ahead of him is Alvaro Morata at 37. Ooh, they paid 59 million for Alvaro, who wasn't entirely unsuccessful, but yeah. And then and then it's Romelu Lukaku, who, F365 point, actually finished up uh, Chelsea's top scorer last season. That bar not set particularly high, of course. He had 15 goals from 44 appearances. Duncan. That's the thing, isn't it? Like the worst signing ever, some people have said, but 15 goals is two more than Gabriel Jesus, who's now seen as this answer to a lot of things last season. Um, and we saw glimpses of how he could be utilised better by Chelsea. That first game away at Arsenal, he looked great. He's essentially played in a different position to, to what he was at Inter. You know, he created mm. five goals for Inter the previous season, basically almost playing as a sort of right winger at points. Mm-hmm. Um and then Chelsea just went, no, we'll we'll do what Man United did and just hit long balls to him and see how that works out. And it and it didn't work. And I just and people go, yeah, but he's going to go back to Serie A and play well because Serie A is not the Premier League. But it didn't really, you know, it didn't um, harm Mo Salah, did it, when he came from Roma to Liverpool? So I don't think there's necessarily this this difference. I think it, modern football is more and more about fitting players into systems at work. Um, and Chelsea just didn't really do that with him. And I guess. 
you know, for from their point of view, sending him back after a year probably probably makes sense. But I don't I don't think he had a, a fair crack of the whip, really. All right. Uh, Chairman Todd Burley will be operating as the interim sporting director until the club find a suitable candidate. That's an interesting position to be in. Yes, uh, this very much sounds like they're going to try and get a proper sporting director ASAP. Okay. Uh, so there are reports in some newspapers that Chelsea are interested in securing the services of Michael Edwards, which would be an interesting wrinkle for next season. Chelsea are a club that can go either way for me. I can very easily see them finishing top four at a canter, but also possibly have a mini implosion with too many moving parts and they end up not in the the bad Chelsea year when they end up with no European football the next season, but in and around that sort of Europa League space. They are... Mm. They're an an enigma. I do Mm. not know what Chelsea, what is a realistic aim for Chelsea next season because they have the manager and squad in theory to put together a title challenge, but I think that won't happen. Well, if late June isn't the time for wild (laughs) speculation about the season to come, (laughs) I don't know when is. Uh, Flo, you you got your finger up. It's because you want to know who was number one on Football 365's countdown of Granite I mean that that as well but I also just wanted to add that um, Todd Bowley's not being chucked completely in the deep end obviously okay. with not very long to put transfers together I think Granite is going to support I think the transition so uh-huh. I think she's she's going to be available this summer to probably do some of the negotiations sort out some of the paperwork so that the American billionaire isn't trying to work out how it all works um, and then, like Carl said, I think they're going to put in someone who, hopefully, for Chelsea Football Club, knows a bit, knows what they're doing. But I think that's the plan, basically. Mm. Duncan, can I interest you in the number one in Football Three Six Five? Yeah, go on. You can guess, probably. No, I, want, I just want to know. All right, Golo Kante. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Come on, that's <laughs> a bit recency bias, isn't it? But no, it's just of Granovskaya's signings. So spanning back to how long? Since she started, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes. I'm not giving her credit for Tori Andrew Flo. Put it that way. So I think she's been in since 2014. So actually, across that list, there's not that many sensational signings. And mm. I think about quite a few. I think it's more duds than than good mm. ones actually in that period. Really? You're talking about the woman who won best club director in European football. Last season, not sure who You're hands never that one out. That. Yeah, who I was going to say who. going to say who added that out. It's probably one of those Dubai she, conference, like football conferences, she that she won it. The blouse as she went up to collect the award. <laughs> I, th- I think even though it's been a really successful period, I think there's been a couple of signings who've been key to key to that, especially recently under Thomas Tuchel. And actually, I think over the course of her time there, there's been quite a a big chunk of fairly mediocre hmm. signings that they've spent quite a bit of money on. I mean, it is quite neat that you've got Kante at the top and Drinkwater at the bottom in a kind of like, Leicester won the league, we'll, tr- we'll buy as many of them as possible and see how it turns out. <laughs> uh, Carl, Man United, they're by now traditional rebuild to title relevancy. Anything different about this summer's one, apart from the fact that they're doing all their shopping at a supermarket called They Played at Ajax? Manchester United have been linked with so many Ajax players and Ajax alumni that mm. the Wesley Schneider rumour is going to come back. <laughs> I am half expecting it to come back. 
Um, it uh, is, so you could probably still do a job. Do a job. It is. Mm. United are once again making interesting noises that they've got their act together. Okay. They don't appear to be doing too much. The Frankie de Jong saga, yes. and, and I think I'm now allowed to call it a saga, looks like it will go on for another week as he's currently on holiday in the United States, it seems. From the outside looking in, it, it doesn't appear that any football player will be arriving imminently. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as I've just seen a tweet saying, it's quite fun knowing as a football player that most Manchester United fans haven't heard of that will go to another club and then a bunch of Manchester United fans will be very angry that United didn't buy them. And so on. And so on. Mm. This squad, with Ten Hag in charge and De Jong, I, mean, I think kind of inevitably, in there, how competitive is that? The arrival of De Jong in isolation mm. solves very few of the problems Manchester United had last season. Uh, so he will inevitably replace a lot of the creativity lost with the departure of Paul Pogba and will make United essentially to that level again in how they progress the ball in the middle third. But United's problems are defensive structures, a complete mess, real weaknesses at crosses, chance creation is okay, but their finishing isn't great. And you can't really have, they have two heliocentric models at the same time that doesn't quite work. You can't have everything revolve around Bruno Fernandes and revolve around Cristiano Ronaldo at the same time. One of them has to defer on the link fart noise. Carl, I wanted to ask you, so much of the the chat is about who's coming in, but surely there's got to be quite a few departures to kind of cleanse the squad a little bit. So who is most likely to head off at the moment? So outside of everyone who's departed... On a free contract, so Juan Mata and the Manu Matic, Paul Pogba, Jesse Lingard, El Cavani and whatnot. There are, you would expect one of Axel Tuenzebi and Eric Bailly to wish to depart. I think those are two centre-backs that have the potential to play 20 Premier League games a season or 20 league games a season in Europe somewhere. Uh, and I think they're both reaching a point in their career where they think, well, I have to move, otherwise my career is inevitably stalled. I think Dean Henderson has had a rotten luck across the last 18 months. There's an alternate reality where he doesn't get injured, maybe features in one game at the Euros and then starts pre-season because he doesn't have COVID and then is United starting goalkeeper for 21-22. Dean Henderson definitely needs a new club and will likely have a new club in due time. Right. Nottingham Forest. Yes. I think Mm. one of the big problems for United and has been a huge problem for United in basically the last decade is they're not Mm. very good at selling players. They rarely Mm. make a profit on any player sale. I think Dan James is the fourth profit they've made in the last 10 years. Um, And what you you tend to have is situations where you get a player like Anthony Martial, who is not good enough for what United want to do anymore, but is on the better part of £200,000 a week. So clubs that could afford, that, that could do with the talent of Anthony Martial, can't afford his financial commitment. So... Again, underlating fart noise. And hanging over all of this is the spectre of what happens if De Gea doesn't have another worldly season. Is, is that right? Yes. I mean, it's, it's not just De Gea having a worldly season. It, it, it's Manchester United's defence for the better part of two years has relied on individuals to take on a lot of responsibility and win a far higher percentage of their 1v1 duels than pretty much any other top six club. And it works when they're all in good form. 
But if it doesn't work and they all have a section of bad form, like Harry Maguire, then it all just falls off a cliff. So mm. maybe Raphael Varane comes in and has like done Pilates and is feeling really great and <laughs> hits all the targets that he used to hit. But if he plays anywhere closer to average, United will be in a mess again. Mm. Well, Duncan. United let in more Premier League girls than Burnley last season, which is, is quite telling. So maybe they should have bought Nick Pope. <laughs> right. Manchester United once again need a defensive midfielder, but I will mm. not shout that too much. <laughs> okay, Nick Pope, who's gone, of course, Duncan too. Uh, Newcastle, which mm. kind of makes sense if you do the sort of I'm playing football manager, who's gone down, who's a good player in those teams. But A, Nick Pope had an amazing sort of 2020, but I think last year was you know slightly below par. And also his passing, and I know you have to caveat that, this with the fact that, and we were just talking about Dean Henderson and his passing at Sheffield United was very direct and he has done, you know, more progressively at United. But I'm not sure Nick Pope necessarily fits into the sort of long-term playing style that, that Newcastle and Eddie Howe are probably going to go for. But, right. you know, he's a brilliant shot stopper. If if your defence is getting, uh, you know, conceding a lot of shots, then Nick Pope is a, is a good goalkeeper. If it isn't, arguably less so. Nottingham Forest, by the way, not just uh, securing Dean Henderson on a season-long loan, but also about to unveil their club record signing up front, a man you know all about, Carl Anker. Yes, Taiwo Awanyi, who was at Liverpool for a decent amount of time, but work permit issues mainly couldn't make a senior appearance, went to Union Berlin last season, had a quite brilliant debut season in the Bundesliga. I think he finished sixth in the race for Golden Boot. Liverpool have a 10% sell-on clause on this player. Uh, and, uh, I mean, he went to Union Berlin for €6 million, Euros, and I think there will be a point in time where he will cost another club or you know 60 million euros to, to get Ooh. him he, he's got he's got a very pleasing pizza chart and a very pleasing shot map okay and some caveats as to you know, he seems very much a very good bundesliga ready player looks he can really attack the ball if you give him space to run into and it's you want to play a heavy transitional style of football i haven't watched too much of nottingham forest and i don't know if they're going to be able to play that style of football next season but he's got all the pieces there to be a 20 league goal season player for sure. He's got it in a way that a uh, few strikers do. Very nice. It's hilarious how even, even with that, Liverpool's ability just to get, you know, just magic money out of the transfer market compared to other clubs. I mean, I'm pretty sure they could sell James Milner for 60 million right now and everyone <laughs> would be like, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's amazing. He didn't make one senior appearance for Liverpool, uh, got sold for six, six million, and he'll probably bringing in another two to three million through this sell-on clause. I think it's quite funny that they've basically broken even on Minamoto. Minamino, mm. even. Um, he was going, I think he's going to Monaco for mm. 17 million plus some add-ons, which you can say that he was quite unconvincing in 2021. Didn't really look up to it um, in terms of physical or, or, or the speed of the game while on at Southampton. And yet Monaco have gone, yep, yeah, here you go. No worries. Don't worry about any potential money you've may have lost on this on this quite good but possibly not Premier League ready attacking player. Mm. Remarkable. It is. Uh, one or two last things just to wrap up this transfer section. One would be Sebastian Allaire, one of the few players 
with a better goal per game ratio, if you're very selective about your fixtures, in the Champions League than Erling Haaland, <laughs> who's gone to Borussia Dortmund. Or he's about to go to Borussia Dortmund. Duncan, some stats to back up my wild introduction. Well, as you hinted there, obviously he scored more goals in the Champions League uh, last season than he did in his entire time at, at West Ham, which is decent. But he... Um, for me, the, the best Haller stat is that he was born on June the 22nd, 1994. Yeah, happy birthday, Sebastian, <laughs> for this week. Um, so he might have been conceived on the day that Gunnar Haller scored his final Premier League home goal, which was September the 25th, 1993. Um, gestation experts may want to chip in at that point. But yeah, it's um, haunting when you think of it like that. It's a it's lot of there's a lot of ifs, a lot of maybes there. <laughs> All right, if you want something more concrete, then he, him, and Wayne Rooney are the only two players who've been sold by David Moyes, who've then scored a hat trick on their Champions League debut. So, wow, wow. not bad. Uh, you just had that up your sleeve just in case, just for emergency use. Okay. <laughs> right, yeah. Wow, that's remarkable, Duncan. Uh, let's finish off then by just referencing a story from kind of last week, Lucy Bronze going to Barcelona, which we, we never really got a, an informed take on. Uh, but Flo, why don't you give us one? I think it took everyone by surprise, to be honest. Um, I think people had expected the news to come after the Euros because we're getting closer and closer and closer. And a lot of her City teammates had already kind of wrapped up where they were going or just announced that they were leaving the club. So she'd already confirmed that she was leaving, but no one knew where she was heading. She'd been on holiday in the States, visiting uh, some old England teammates, watching uh, Casey Stoney's San Diego team. So there were a lot of rumours that she was going to be heading to the US. And there was also rumours that she was going to be going to Real Madrid. But she kind of surprised everyone by heading to Barcelona, um, which, yeah, I think is an interesting move for them. They've lost some key players this window, Barcelona and, and Barcelona and City are kind of having a, a similar sort of exodus. Um Obviously, lost the Champions League final, which I think was a bit of a surprise. Bronze has lost a lot of her kind of um, Ballon d'Or aura, I guess. And I think she, yeah, she definitely isn't the player that she once was. I think she's naturally, because of her age, lost a bit of that speed, that physicality, which made her such a, a hard, tough player to play against. I think if... Barcelona play it the way they normally do, which is have enough cover in front of her. I think it will be fine, but she takes a lot of risks. Um, I think we're going to see that in the Euros this summer with England. She still plays like she's 26. So I think it'll be interesting to see how Barcelona kind of cover for that. But yeah, an interesting move. Um, and it'll be you know good to see them if they can sort of fight back in the Champions League next season. Absolutely. All right, well, you mentioned the Euros coming up in about two weeks now and you're fresh back from St George's Park and England's media day on Tuesday we'll talk about that next Place your bets welcome to Pep Roulette Charlotte feeling confident today me and your selection just start up front blue number 9 and 26 uh, 17 as well just behind the front two like excellent good luck blue number 7 unlucky sir oh Sterling he started last week Predicting Pep's lineups is hard, but fortunately, we've made our bet builder easy. Simply choose a top pre-built bet builder, click add to bet slip, select your stake, and done. Paddy power. Online exclusive. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. July 6th. 
the Women's Euro Championship gets underway this Friday. Ahead of that, the Lionesses will be facing the Netherlands at Ellen Road in a pre-tournament friendly. Rich in narrative flow. European Championship hosts against the European champions and also England manager up against her old side. Yeah, it was really emotional for a lot of the Holland players when Serena Wigman left after the Olympic Games in Tokyo. Holland ended up not winning a medal in that tournament, but it was really, really emotional because that group had been on such a journey with her and a lot of them didn't want to see her go. And it was a massive coup for England to get her. And um, I think you kind of see how strong that relationship was and how good Wiegmann is as a coach because since Mark Parsons took over Holland, they've really struggled. Um, And I think England are, are very, very lucky to have probably one of the best best coaches in women's football at the moment, especially on an international level, leading their team. Um, so it'll be really interesting, I think, for Wiegmann to come up against that group. And I, it does feel like the Holland team are still playing as if they wish she was there. So I wonder if we'll see kind of some of that before or after the game, because I think there is a real kind of longing for like, oh, I wish we could go back to where we were, you know, in 2017, home Euros winning that tournament. I think it's been a really hard transition for a lot of those players. Um, but yeah, exciting, exciting warm-up game. Um, probably the toughest that England will face. They've already played Belgium and then they go to Zurich to play Switzerland on the 30th of June. And then they've got, uh, you know, a little brief break before the tournament starts against Austria on the 6th of July at Old Trafford. Crikey. Uh, How was the media day? Anything exciting? Uh, I mean, those things are always a little bit manic. I don't know if Carl went to the the men's Euros one last summer. I went to the women's one in 2019 before the World Cup. Um, And it is, yeah, it's it's a little bit manic. And I think the players get... Well, they kind of just send the players in for an hour, uh, a little bit over an hour. And they just basically go on like a rotation. So you have... Broadcasters like on dating. one side. It is basically speed dating. Right. Um, so you have broadcasters on one side doing their sit-down interviews and podcasts. Then you have kind of TV sort of roaming in between doing live stuff and grabbing players for interviews. Then you have sort of digital on one side. And then you have all the writers sitting on these sofas in huddles. And then the players kind of like sheepishly walk over like, oh, hey, how are you doing? And then you kind of sit, chat to them for five minutes and then a buzzer sounds not literally but they have it they have a countdown from 60 down onwards oh yeah downwards anyway um and uh and then the, what they the, have a countdown know, on the wall yeah they have a countdown on a screen that has 60 minutes on and it keeps going down and then basically the comms team come and sort of shuffle them on if they hang out too long chatting right. to chatting to the media so it's good it's just it's just really hectic and i think it's it's a lot for the players as well i think it's pretty overwhelming for them but they're all you know really really um confident really excited about the tournament I do think we're at a place where there's a lot more media training now in the women's game so I think it's hard to get really good original nuggets out of them I think since 2019 I don't know if any of you guys watched the little BBC3 documentary that came out just before the 2019 World Cup where they kind of filmed the England camp at St George's Park for a bit under Phil Neville And they film this scene where all the group are sitting in a lecture hall in St. George's Park. And then they they talk about getting, you know, how to speak to the media. And they sort of do this foam uh, mix zone thing. And you've got like Nikita Paris and Karen Carney, which is before she retired, sort of chatting to the media. And they kind of pretend to answer questions. 
that for me was a pivotal point in the media <laughs> versus women's football debate because ever since then, if you ask an England player, most, I mean, some go off piece a little bit, but most of them, if you ask them, you know, do you want to win the Euros? Uh, what are you hoping to get out of this tournament, etc.? Questions like this, like, do you think you can win the tournament? They will all say, we just want to make the country proud and we want to make our families proud. And it is a line that is imprinted on their foreheads now <laughs> because it is impossible to get anything else out of them um and you know some of that's up to up to the journos to to try and get a little bit more but i think they obviously know that with a home tournament there's going to be extra pressure and they need to um straight back things a little bit more but yeah since 2019 i found that as the default answer to most questions about winning major <laughs> tournaments were there any nuggets that did elicit a response yeah, I think there were, you know, there were a few a few interesting answers kind of not necessarily around just winning the tournament. Obviously, a lot of players spoke about how much impact Serena Vigman's had on their game, how different it's been to work under her, um, how honest she is, but not in a kind of harsh way um, and how amazing it was to, to make the squad and how they found out and and you know, being part of the group and all this kind of stuff. And it was actually interesting chatting to Lotta Moy because she gave a little bit more when I asked about, you know, what do you want to achieve personally at this tournament? And she said, well, actually, growing up, I felt like I never saw the skill, the flair and the technique in women's football. And that, for me, is the legacy that I want to leave behind, which I think was really refreshing because a lot of players will say, oh, I can't wait to inspire people to play football and I know that's obviously true for a lot of them, but I think there is so much more to it than that. And, you know, she did kind of, you know, honestly answer that's saying, I never got to see that growing up. And for me, it's about showcasing that side of women's football this summer. So that was definitely refreshing. Outside of England, which is the team you're most looking forward to, to seeing this summer? I think Sweden are definitely the favourites. And I'm in, interested to just see how they get on in their first game. They've got a medium size tough group um, mm. but they've just been progressing uh, major tournament on major tournament and they definitely go into this as one of the favourites they just missed out on a gold medal again at the Olympic Games they obviously beat England in the World Cup third place playoff uh, back in 2019 and they've added a lot more flair and creativity to their game because I think obviously traditionally and stereotypically we know Swedish teams as very organised, very defensively robust. And that's certainly the case when they got Chelsea captain and Swedish captain Magdalena Eriksson leading them. But going forward, they've got a lot of flair now. They've got Black Stenius who plays for Arsenal, Arsenal uh, Fridolin Rolfo who plays at Barcelona. They've got a lot of good attacking talent. And I think at the Olympic Games in Tokyo, they kind of showcased how they can really... Um, um, switch up the way that they they play, and it's not just now like set piece goal threats. They've got a lot of uh, a lot of attacking threats, so I think they are definitely the favourites, and then probably England behind them, just because it's a home tournament and, and they've got such a good coach now. All right, Sweden are in with Netherlands, uh, Switzerland, and Portugal in Group C. Group D features France, Italy, Belgium, and Iceland. Group B has Germany, Denmark, Spain, and Finland. And England are in Group A with Austria, Norway and Northern Ireland who have released an official Euros anthem, Girl Got Game by Jessica Hammond. Uh, did England unveil theirs at St George's Park, Flo? I am still waiting to find out what the anthem's going to be. I don't think we're going to get one, sadly. Really? I'm really disappointed. 
Is there a theme song for the tournament? There is a theme song for the tournament. It's not very good, um, but okay. there is a theme song for the tournament. Um, it, I don't. I, I think it's actually by a French pop group. Um, oh. So I think it must be a UEFA choice there, which I don't know why they. I, I was expecting something quintessentially quite crap and kind of like Brit poppy, but actually they've gone with something. I, I mean, I love Eurotrash, I love Eurovision, so anything that kind of airs on that side. I think the problem with the tournament song is it's quite depressing. Oh. <laughs> it's kind of quite a sad song. Um, and I think that's not what you want to get everyone hyped for a tournament. But Ella Henderson, who's a like UK kind of pop, pop girl who um, shot to fame on the X Factor, she performed at the Euros draw in Manchester in October and she performed at the FA Cup final in December. So I thought she would be the obvious choice for some kind of England or Euros anthem, but it's been pretty quiet on the on the old socials for her. She's been doing a few like summer bops, you know, little dance th- songs, but I haven't seen anything. So she would be my choice, but obviously she's got like two weeks to try and roll out <laughs> something if it's not in, in the works. But Ella, if you're listening... You know, please, please get something together because we need it, I think. Why is it that teams don't, they don't make theme songs anymore? It's James Why? Corden's fault. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's my answer to everything. But I, I believe that the last, the last World Cup song was 2010, where James Corden and Dizzy Rascal teamed up for mm. a very poor rap. Was that the uh, last one? There hasn't been one since that's then. That's the last one I can the remember. The last England I one. Yeah. I don't believe the England men's team had one for 2014 and they didn't have one for 2018. So I think the last one, genuinely, it might be James Corden's fault. Also, 2010 was the last tournament pretty much where most players didn't either didn't have social media or were very early on in it. So I mm. think it, it's very much a, it's an, you know, back in the day, it mm. was exciting for players to get asked to go and record a song and, you know, go on top of the pops. And, and now it, it's, you know, probably quite rightly <laughs> very beneath them. Right. And also top of the pop just doesn't exist anymore. So. Well, that as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll be talking, <laughs> we'll be talking actually about one of the most famous theme songs, perhaps little bit later on but a quick shout out to the game that was on this week which was england serbia in the under 19 euros 4-0 for england it was dane scarlett out of tottenham hotspur got a brace pick of the goals though i would say was uh carney chukwameka's uh delightful third that's two wins out of two for england if you fancy seeing if they can make it three from three well they'll be up against israel on saturday night and they are already through, courtesy of that 4-0 win against Serbia, to the semi-finals of the tournament in Slovakia. And there they will be facing either France or Italy. Excellent. Carl or Duncan, do you or even James, do you know why the under the like age group hmm. tournaments are always split into different sections? So it's like you do like an initial th- group stage and then you qualify to the next round, which is at a different time and sometimes in a different country. It really baffles me. Is it just to fit in with the calendar or I just don't really get that? So with the under 21 Euros, I believe there was a break in group stage just in case any of those players got called up for club duties. Oh, so for club duty, okay. C- club duty or seniors. That is my, right. I'm not, not an unofficial uh, answer to that. I think that's the reason why. I, I'm not sure for, for, for the under-19s and whatnot, but I, I always get the impression that they have a little break just in case. 
right. a player that runs really hot and a manager goes, oh, hang on, into preseason you go. But that's um, also weird because it means that you might even never finish the tournament that you were the star of. Mm. So it's like you could you could score five goals in the you know group stage right. and then you might not even end up playing in the next stage and then win right. the golden boot and you're not even there to, to turn up and get it. If, if, risk, if you look at England's it? great England's World Cup victory, uh, you know the group with Phil Foden and Hudson Odoi mm, yeah, and all yeah, that. Yeah. So Jaden Sancho didn't make it to the final because I think he he was either sick or he gets pulled back to Dortmund duty. So there's there's always this very fun bit towards the knockouts where a very good player can essentially be too good and gets removed almost like a handicap, which I think is uh, a fun wrinkle to youth football. Interesting question. Interesting answer too, Carl. Many thanks. Next up, some questions, some old stuff, and Duncan's favourite World Cup is revealed. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one-legged bet builder lets you down. Which is excellent news for Everton fans when they make their Lampardian transition from serious to funny to serious once again. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Online exclusives and T's and C's apply. To celebrate 30 years of the Premier League, The Athletic are counting down their top 50 individual performances from the competition's history. Today we're up to number 41 which is Ian Wright's brace for Arsenal against Everton. This is in August 1993. And Carl Anker, you wrote about this. I did indeed. I had a wonderful phone call with Ian Wright about his lob over Neville Southall and we had a great conversation about natural finishing. So Ian said that he, at no point throughout the sequence where he lobbed Southall, did he know he was going to lob Southall. He said, ball comes over and his first instinct was keep possession then something else happened. He went, oh, well, then I'll try this. Then I'll try this. Uh, he described this autopilot, um, which is a long-standing theory in that the natural part of natural finishing isn't what happens with your feet, but what happens in your brain. Mm. Uh, we had a great conversation about that. So I hope you can all enjoy that. Right. Just got Jackson to beat. Oh, he's ticked it over the top of him. And, oh, wonderful. A magic goal from Ian Wright. That opens up an interesting window into the mechanisms of football and, and, as you say, happening in the brain, but at a purely subconscious level because the rational mind just doesn't have time to process what's, what's going on. And I guess that might be as well an element of what a right is, is talking about with, with autopilot. Best goal he ever scored, the second one in that, in that game, according to the man himself. He would go on to notch up 35 goals in all competitions this season. This next stat I find a little bit astonishing. That Arsenal team of the 93-94 campaign holds a Premier League record, the fewest number of goal scorers in a season ever. How many players scored a Premier League goal for them that season? Just six. And it was a 42-match campaign as well. And they still managed fourth. Curtsy of the fact that Ian Wright scored a bundle and so did Kevin Campbell too. In fact, they scored almost 70% of all the Gunners' goals. Duncan, you like numbers. How do you feel about those? 
Yeah, it's one of those uh, those classic early Premier League um, era stats, isn't it? I think Liverpool in 95, 96 only used 19 players. It's the only time that teams used fewer than 20 in the Premier League season. So it was... Squads How many weren't did what Leicester they used when they won the title. Uh, slightly more than that. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, the nineteen nineties in the Premier League was um, was you know a more parsimonious time. So, uh, trying to get but, footage of that game from nineteen ninety three, so I could watch not just the right second goal, but the first goal as well, and everything else was quite difficult. Um, they, it's a the very strange part of this. Obviously, it's still twenty two teams, forty two. Season. I always forget Swindon were there in the early Premier League seasons. Uh, and one thing that does always stick out is just there are so fewer camera angles. Mm. And a goal as good as Ian Wright's love, there is only one angle of that that exists. Whereas I, I spoke to Tim Stillman about this and he said if, if the goal was scored 10 years later, we'd have four or five. Um, and he's also got a very interesting thing in that the Camry at Highbury is just lower and closer to the goal compared to other football stadiums. So I had a conversation with someone who at Sports Interactive about this. Arsenal goals at Highbury stick in your memory for longer because all the players in your br- just look 1.1 or 1.3 of a football player out of another football stadium. So Thierry looks eight foot in your brain. When when Arsenal moved to the Emirates, the first time you saw Enrigo on one of those sort of slaloming runs, you were like, that just doesn't look right. It's like no, a, he, but, he, he looks small. <laughs> But you see this, like a lot of people think that the hybrid pitch was tiny and it wasn't the biggest pitch, but it, you know, football pitches are all much of a muchness, give or take a few metres here or there, but it literally was that camera angle. It was, uh, yeah, a miss it. Which camera angle, which stadium has the camera angle least conducive to a spectacular replay then? I mean, Wembley on a sunny yeah. day is... Mm. I, th- I think we are now at the point of this time last year, England are in the middle of that incredible run to the Euro final. Um, yeah. So this time last year, I just got a lot of photographs on my phone of Wembley Shadow. Mm. Yeah. And it's that thing. Oh yeah, it's a cup final, and the first fifteen minutes you're going, oh, Wembley at three o'clock is so annoying. That Croatia game, that first game, it was actually really hard to watch. A lot of that game, I wasn't there. I was watching it at home, and it was actually really hard to watch because even with the best broadcasting technology, you know, that, that's available, four K, Ultra HD, whatever. Sometimes you just can't get the shadow sorted out, and it was really hard. The contrast was ridiculous. A, a shout-out for the Champions League final this year, which seemed to be filmed from a blimp somewhere in <laughs> <laughs> The uh, Arsenal-Chelsea Europa League final uh, was in yeah. a similar category oh, yes. a few years back. Yes. Mm. Here's a question from Ryan Matthews, who asked with uh, Nuri Sayan and uh, Carlos Tevez taking up managerial positions. Sayan was uh, actually last October at Antalya Sport in Turkey. But Tevez, excitingly, you probably saw this week, uh, appointed as manager of Rosario Central. Uh, but uh, Ryan says uh, the ceaseless march of time is coming for us all. Who is the first player becoming a manager that has made the panel feel old? Now, have you ever felt old, Flo? Yeah, I think the Lampard and the Gerrard really? managerial situation makes okay. me feel old, yeah. Right. Ryan Mason. Ryan Mason's yeah. interim spell in charge of Spurs got me. Went, he's oh, only wait, about 25 still. I made him feel yeah. old, I think. Oh, there's a Premier League football manager who is younger than me. That yeah. I remember. Yeah. Uh, I, I've, you know, I've interviewed Ryan Mason in a mix zone before. Right. Um, and I went, oh, this is it. I, I can no longer pretend that I might still be able to do a job for... 
somewhere in the football pyramid. I am now firmly a typist. <laughs> He's the only man younger than Sky Sports to take charge of a Premier League game, which is quite disturbing. But but it was Rooney for me because I went. I was at the stadium. I'd like to see Rooney's full debut for England against mm. Turkey. And he'll always be that sort of teenage, you know, Rooney. And then now seeing him as a kind of grizzled League One manager is uh, is upsetting. Yeah, I think it's more the it's it's more the way that being a manager ages a lot of these people so quickly. Frank at Everton definitely, Rooney at, at Derby definitely. Like they they finished their careers still with kind of little baby face still mm. looking fairly fresh and young and then suddenly just within a few games the wrinkles are setting in the grey is there it's yeah it's yeah. I think Gerard's done quite well actually I don't know who his his surgeon is but whoever he, or his skincare routine maybe mm. we should get some <laughs> tips because he's managed to like, Gerard's hairline is the most yeah you know it can't be broken it I would say broken. that Mikel Arteta's got some DNA that wants a piece of this conversation <laughs> but, but yeah very very much so all right, here's another question. Thanks for that, Ryan. Uh, Kaz B says, ooh, uh, Thursday marks six years since the Brexit referendum. So it does. Can Duncan do a flip reverse? No, <laughs> let's not. Uh, but uh, Kaz B also points out that it's the anniversary 26 years since Karol Poborski's lovely lob. Craig, do you remember that? This was uh, Villa Park, Euro 96, Czech Republic against Portugal. And with that goal booking, the Czech Republic a place in the semi-finals and... Himself a move to Manchester United. Yeah, that I'd say it wasn't. A, it was more of a scoop than a lob. Was it a it scoop? Kind of, okay. It sort of slid his foot underneath the board and hoisted it up. But hmm. that that transfer very much made a mockery of uh, you know scouting reports. I think it was like who was the guy that scored that really cool goal <laughs> in the Euros? Let's buy him. And um, but I miss those days. We might see a return. I think we're going to get returned this January transfer window. So. It's it's only gonna it's gonna open up maybe a fortnight after the World Cup final and everyone will need someone. Liverpool can go on about they scouted Darwin Nunes since he was one years old, <laughs> but he did score home and away against them in the Champions League, and you know right. that tends to you know solidify thoughts. Hmm. Okay, more on this day you ask. Well, how about Zinedine Zidane being born fifty years ago? Happy birthday, Zizou! How about a World Cup on this day? 1998, 22nd of June, Scotland lost 3-0 to Morocco in what was their last World Cup final game for their men's team anyway. Ever. Duncan? I mean, Scotland from that World Cup, obviously the Delamitri song we've talked about before being good, but I'd listened to it yesterday in a in a fit of nostalgia and um, mm. one of the lines in it is even long shots make it, which obviously in the XG era should, should get it banned from Spotify. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> really mess with the data that one <laughs> yeah <laughs> 22nd of June 2010 for our American listeners Landon Donovan middle name Freedom uh, he scored a famous last minute winner against Algeria that saw USA book a place in the knockouts in South Africa saw Bill Clinton pitch up to party with the players in the dressing room and six days later saw Donovan appear on the David Letterman show do you know what's also interesting about that era is mm. the US fans, That I think that was the, the tournament in which they started their I Believe That We Will Win chant, and I've now seen it being used by protest groups who uh, have been stopping immigration raids 
and immigration arrests up and down the UK, they have been using the I believe that we will win chant when they're trying to block off sections from immigration officers. Now, that is not a transition I saw coming, but if football wants to influence things like that, I'm all, all for it. But Freedom yeah, Donovan. I'm not sure a lot of the yeah. group there maybe know where that chant came from, but mm. uh, you know who knew Landon Donovan was inspiring such a you know, great civil protest? Well, indeed. Uh, Carl, I should say his middle name isn't actually Freedom. That was just me being silly because his <laughs> first name's Landon. His name is Freedom Donovan to me now. Okay. <laughs> um, 2010, it's nice that there were some positive benefits to 2010 because it is, for me, I think my least favourite World Cup by some distance. The reasons for that being, I think... Uh, it was the, bad. And also it had James Corden do that terrible TV show on ITV. Which you could also not England watch. Game. So again, it's James Corden's fault. There were also, there was an Italy washout, which, you know, admittedly, at least they got to that one. I mean, that was the fun. time it stung. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> and there were Vuvuzelas all over the, the, the thing. Middle-aged Rooney saying, nice to hear your own fans booing you. Yeah. Um, the owl on the crossbar, though, that was one of my favourite. I will mm. I will maintain the 2010 World Cup is yep. the weirdest World Cup until na- the one we'll have this year. I think well, it's maybe it's it's got a very strong flavouring to it because it's it's you know, first World Cup in Africa, mm. so it's got very strong flavouring to it, very strong non-European, non-traditional footballing nation flavours to it. So hence the Vuvuzelas, hence the essential crumbling of traditional footballing superpowers. So Brazil don't do great, England don't do great, Argentina don't have a great tournament, uh, and then you get essentially the new order establishing itself, which is mm. Spain. So I will argue that it's. Weird, strong flavouring. Not everyone likes it. I can't say it is good, but I do have a a soft spot for it. Also, with the caveat, I am Ghanaian, so that's also why I have a soft spot for it too. In this essay, I will. (laughs) (laughs) Carl, you mentioned uh, traditional superpowers and new order, and that brings us on rather nicely to uh, Duncan's favourite World Cup. We talked about this uh, last week. What was the optimum age to enjoy a World Cup and how it's always when everyone's kind of early teens when the tournament rolls around. Is that is that the case for you, Duncan? Uh, yeah, 1930. Um, it was a new <laughs> tournament. No, 1990. Sorry, I made a mistake. Um, yeah, I was 12. So yeah. I think there is, it's been well documented that obviously sort of your teenage years you kind of experience reality in this kind of hyper state everything feels a bit realer and a a bit and I think and I think I've got to be careful here because I'm slightly against the current wave of extreme nostalgia around football like there seems to be more and more like remember when this was good remember you know this was football was much better I don't necessarily think that's the case there'll be people enjoying every single year of football Mm. there'll be people who for 2010 will live in their memory forever Mm. Um, but I was at the right point, I guess, uh, in 1990 and, you know, lots of reasons, um, you know, both personal and, and general. I think obviously, you know, 1990 has a special place in England and, and Ireland particularly, but, um, it wasn't very good overall. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You mentioned nostalgia. A lot of people, the, the, the informed take is that what a rubbish World Cup that actually was. It was the lowest scoring World Cup ever. It had one of the highest red card counts. Uh, it contained probably the worst World Cup final ever, or one of. 
Argentina's 1-0 defeat to West Germany, courtesy of Andy Bremer's late penalty. But it was all, but there was a drama, and I know that a lot of this is because of when it happened and the context and the, the lack of football blanket coverage that we had in those days. But it had a drama and a, and a romance... It was the, okay, so it was the last of the old-fashioned World Cups. Carl, you were yeah. mentioning the, the 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 new formatting and 2010, but even the next one after this, USA with the Diana Ross penalties and all that, it was the last World Cup with West Germany with the Czechoslovakia, the Soviet Union in it, and you know, in in our current time of Russia and Qatar and and what's coming up and the one after that, it, I mean, I look back on this as a real, I mean, something as as magnificent but ultimately impractical as one of those glorious old vintage cars that you see rolling down the road sometimes <laughs> on the way to a, a rally. Every World Cup is a rite of passage for someone. Mm. And yeah. it sounds as if both James and Duncan had two different sorts of rites of passage with Italian 90. <laughs> what kind of rite of passage did you have in 1990, Duncan? Well, that's for a wholly different podcast. But, um... <laughs> You've got to remember how much football was hated, generally, by by society in 1990. You know, in the 80s, it, I mean, I didn't realise until I went to university and, and met people who'd gone to better schools than me, that how much no one really liked football, that, generally. Well, I guess they sort of, ha- sort of did after 1990, but it was... It was in such a bad place, and and it started off like that. You know, England were, were confined to Sardinia and purely to sort of hope, you know... FIFA hope they get knocked out in the group stage and would never have to even see the Italian yeah, main Yeah, put a large but, body of water between them and the rest of the country in the meanwhile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and that first game England played against the Republic of Ireland, obviously the Gazetta della Sport had the famous headline afterwards, no football please, we're British, which I'm not sure went down that well in Dublin. But it was a fair comment because it had a 60.5% pass completion rate that game, which you'd see that in you probably wouldn't see that in league two these days i mean it really was a terrible terrible match and and it and a little bit like um the euros last year that i think tournaments are kind of rated on how a team ends up rather than how they played like england you know they they were they had a good game against uh the netherlands they didn't mm. play well against egypt or ireland they were very lucky against cameroon the belgian game was a you know pretty much deadlock, obviously, until David Platt scored at the end, and then the the West German West Germany semi final was a great performance by England, but obviously, you know, heroic defeat, etc., etc. But but it was like you were saying, James, that the set pieces. I mean, not I don't mean the set pieces on the mm. game. I mean the set pieces of of Italian football. This was when Serie A was almost you know at its peak, and and seeing these stadiums that you never got to see but read about, like the San Siro, and that first game Argentina Cameroon with Maradona juggling the ball on his shoulders before the kickoff, and then Cameroon doing what they did, and you know the the red card on Canigia, which was just beautiful in its in its execution and then Oman Beats header which was one of the most athletic headers you'll ever see in football and from then on it just you know you had the the Rudy Voller Frank Rijkaard spitting mm. you had all these all these things and then you had Ness and Dorma and you had World in Motion which is a thousand times well, better yeah. than Badil and Skinner so well, some people will like Badil and Skinner but it... those people are wrong no, there's, I mean, it's, it's, I think no. it also helps that one thing that also is the advantage of the '90s World Cups and, and those before the '90s is that they're all shot on film. So, it, as you've just heard in, in Duncan's 
wistful remembrance. Mm. It it just burns bright in your memory because it's shot on on a camera. But you're not watching it in film just... at the time. That's only later on when you see the you know the the FIFA package. No, well, that's the, 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 that's the stuff you remember most, right? I don't I don't, I don't know. I don't necessarily. I don't well, remember. Too, I don't remember too much about England nil, Scotland nil last year. Hmm. I do remember the. 10, 15 minute period, Jack Grealish comes on and starts having Macy dribbles that sucks in loads of Scotland defenders because that's what's made the highlights. And it's the highlights that prevail and the highlights for the 90s World Cups will last longer because they're on film. They're on just a, a nicer quality. I do think Carl's point there is, you know, it wasn't like you could jump on YouTube and watch the, the goals. I, I remember getting the VHS of the, of Italia 90 in, I don't know, September and just watching it again and again and again. And it was, yeah, and the, and certain things like Lothar Mateus, um, his goal at, at San Siro from, from distance, that just, I can envisage that goal better than I can envisage most goals from the Premier League last season. Mateus Vida. Und das ist das Tor! Weltklasse, Weltklasse, yep. einmalig, einmalig. Also bärenstark, dieser Lothar Matthäus heute. It's that sort of hyper-reality of that age that you, you take you take in, I think. So. so, Flo, you were a long way from existing when Italia 90 took place, and I suspect, <laughs> Carl, that might be true of you as well. Wasn't born, wasn't born. Yeah. This is, Flo, this is you, the... what's your impression of Italia 90? Is it just a kind of a date in the... On the Wikipedia page, I think to to kind of lean on what Carl's already said, I think my only memory memories are the ones that you see in the clips because mm. I wasn't around to watch the kind of original version. So I only right. I, I only really experienced those World Cups through highlight reels. Okay, and do you, so you don't really have any attachment to any of them. Not anything that I think ninety eight is really my first attachment. Okay. So I was yep. five then. Uh, I also used to go to France on holiday as a kid mm. a lot growing up. So I was in France at the time, huh. not going to any games, but watching the no, tournament but the buzz in France. Was, the yeah. Was there. yeah. So I think that was probably my first one that I really kind of could understand what a World Cup was and, and things like that. All right. But it also feels like the one of the final World Cups where you did have this sort of mystery element. So you'd heard about Roberto Baggio and there he was and then he scored that goal against Czechoslovakia and, and it's funny because obviously Baggio and Gaza are seen as these two youngsters that broke out at the world. They're both 23. Now they'd be like the <laughs> the middle-aged players in a in an international team. What about um, Tuttos then? Yeah. What about Aldo Serena's little weird patch sideburns <laughs> which used to really scare me? There's some great hair. You know what? I know that There's tournament very well because of the hair. Adults. The hair yeah. was the, the hair Giuseppe was Giannini had the best oh. hair I've ever seen. I think my dad I from, was pretty for a good. while. My dad had a fo- had the had the image of Rikard spitting in Voller's hair mm. because yeah. something I only came to appreciate as I reached adulthood. My dad really didn't like Rudy Voller for reasons okay. I still don't understand. <laughs> um, so he had that photograph. Uh, my mum was really annoyed at Gary Lineker for his performance in the Cameroon game because she wanted Cameroon to win. I see. Uh, so Italian night is the last World Cup. My mum actively watches uh, so she will talk to me a lot about Cameroon's path through the tournament which I find quite interesting England were the baddies at Italian 90 in my household so mm-hmm. I have a very interesting view of this World Cup for everyone else Flo I think you should go and watch the um, the official film perhaps if you can find it because it's, it, it's maybe on FIFA FIFA's YouTube mm, FIFA, channel or something yeah they've just a... relaunched a lot of that. Edward Woodward is the uh, narrator 
I'll go to the uh, thriving uh, FIFA museum in in Switzerland that hasn't yeah. uh, lost billions of of uh, <laughs> of francs since it came into existence. Maybe they have some archive footage and some artifacts that I could enjoy because uh, that's what it was built for. You know, that's what they yeah. spent all that money for. Duncan, we've hijacked your your, your no, conversation. No, no, it's fine. So- it's, uh, but just to. F- to complete my point about the mystery element, mm. I'd heard of a few of the players like Badger. I hadn't heard of Rene Higuita, but mm. like, let me tell you, on the school playing field at lunchtime, <laughs> everyone wanted to be Rene Higuita, and the amount of rush goalkeeper action that exploded after he... And then, it's, as we just talking about Cameroon, obviously he got robbed uh, when Roger Miller scored that goal, which um, was a nice little passing of the, of the kind the of um, zeitgeist torch during that tournament. I mean, it, it, for, for, the, for the stretch of the whole tournament, the football wasn't the greatest, but compress it into a film when you've got Roger Miller, you've got Maradona, Mateus, you've got Argentina drugging the Brazilians' water bottles, although I don't think that makes the official account. Yeah, I think it's very much a World Cup of moments rather than a, a great World Cup, but I think those moments are probably some of the, the greatest um, the moments in World Cup history. And I think, just to finish on a, a couple of stats to maybe highlight the nice. difference... Now to them, yeah, see what I did there. Um, the Italy-Argentina semi-final had um, a foul total of 72, which you don't <laughs> see see much these days. What yeah. did the final have, though? That was in the high f- mid-40s, I think. So, okay. um, obviously, Bremer scored a penalty, World Cup winning penalty, with his weaker foot, although he was he did say he was more accurate with his right foot. Um, and then I think every... Every World Cup has its icons. Um, Pele conceded the most fouls at the 1970 World Cup. Um, oh. and who, con- who conceded the most in 1990? Mick McCarthy. So uh, there, there we go. you go. He did some very, very uh, interesting comms for World Cup 2010. Mick uh, McCarthy. I believe there was a point where Papadopoulos came on the field for Greece and McCarthy simply asked, can I call him Smith? Producer Charlie interjects. Carl to say that Mick also called the Serbia goalkeeper a tart when he rolled around uh, on the pitch at one point. All right, well, that brings us nicely full circle, which is a slight pity because there was one other thing I wanted to mention about 1990, which was music. Not just Ness and Dormer, which you referenced, uh, Duncan, but also, of course, World in Motion, and not just that World in Motion, but this World in Motion. There's only one way to beat them. Get round the back, catch me if you can, because I'm lingling in my And what you're looking at is a masterclass. The raw studio footage there of Gaza essaying John Barnes's rap for World in Motion, a New Order's World Cup 90 England theme. And if you think that's disturbing, if you haven't heard Peter Beardsley, Now's the time to switch off before you do and can never unhear it. To hold and give, but you at the right time. You can be slow or fast, but you must get to the line. They'll always hit you and hurt you. Defend and attack. There's only one way to beat them. Get around the back. I think I've mentioned this on the pod before, but there's a uh, there's a quite long bit in Peter Hook's memoir of being in New Order about the day that they recorded with the England squad. Um, and it's worth checking out. There's some bits that, yeah, probably were 
a little bit wild. And then they about halfway through, all the players left to go and open a top man in Middlesbrough, which uh, <laughs> is the most 1990 thing I've ever heard. Ironic that earlier on we were complaining about how they can't get players in anymore to make official theme songs. Well, anyway, there you go. 1990, lovely stuff, Duncan. And uh, as I say, Flo, check it out because ah, there was something about that tournament. And I'd, I'd love to say I was a teenager at the time. Because I mean, there was something in, in the water, literally, for some teams. Well, that's so true. So true. Anyway, there you go. Uh, well, next time out, let's hear somebody else's uh, favourite World Cup. Perhaps listener, you'd like to let us know yours. But for now, that pretty much wraps it up for this edition of the Tootie Football Show. We return on Monday. Hope you've got a great weekend lined up, everybody. Carl, Flo... Duncan, anything else you want to say apart from goodbye? That's it, listener. It's James Corden's fault. (laughs) (laughs) Indeedy. All right, have a special one, everybody. Many thanks to producer Charlie and you, listener, too. And we'll see you Monday. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.